So Philippians chapters 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Paul, his life, his ministry, and we pray that we would honor him by uh, trying to understand what it is that he says and living in obedience to it. We thank you, Father, for your word uh, administered through these many men who created your Bible. We give you thanks and ask you to guide us and open our mind to understand it in Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty, today we are in the uh, second of a series of five sermons. And the series is entitled Marching Orders. What to do is in the first four sermons knowing what to do, wanting what to do, planning what to do, choosing what to do, and then do, do, do. So knowing what to do is being reasonably certain of a goal or direction. Wanting what to do is aligning our hearts with that chosen goal or direction. Planning what to do, coordinating our thoughts and actions towards attaining that goal. Choosing what to do, overcoming distractions, anything that would dissuade us from accomplishing our goal. And then do do do, holding ourselves accountable, getting us into a virtuous loop. Last week we covered knowing what to do, and I'll cover it quickly now. We talked about mainly making wise decisions. And so knowing what to do is in many ways about making wise decisions. And we asked eight questions of this, whatever it is that you're considering doing or accomplishing. First, is what I'm considering doing even allowed? in accordance with God's word. Two, are my motives pure? 
and are my desired actions moral? This can apply differently to different people. Number three, is what I want to do worth the risks involved? Four, am I or are we, if we're talking about people that will help you attain this goal, are we prepared for this? Are we prepared for the risks, the potential downsides of attempting to accomplish this goal? Number five, by when must a decision be made? And you can ask an abbreviated form of that question, must a decision be made? And last week I proposed various fantasy scenarios that I had lived through in my own mind, and no, there was no decision required in that. I, I just should nip those in the bud. Number six, am I thinking objectively? We want to believe that we are thinking objectively when all along we could be trying to deceive ourselves. We could be ignoring real concerns just because we have our heart set on something that really is not wise to pursue. Number seven and eight, I think, are very important, perhaps the most important, and has to do with the knowing part of knowing what to do. Number seven, has God led you through life to this point where you're making this decision? Is it logical? Is it rational? Does it flow? It doesn't mean, if it doesn't, that it's not something that you're supposed to do. But you have to then ask yourself, why has God led me to this point to have me then take a right turn or a left turn? But so the eighth question is, is God with me in this? Has God led me to this? Is God leading me into this? Now, that was last week. That was about knowing what to do. And today's message is about wanting what to do. And so this is about aligning your hearts with what you now know God wants you to do. It is possible, it's actually quite likely, that you now want to do this already. God has revealed to you something that he wants you to do, and we are blessed by God in this because Psalm 37, 4, it's a favorite of many of us, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will grant you the desires of your heart. So if we are delighting ourselves in the Lord, God may be granting you something that you already desire to do. But the bulk of this message will be about aligning your heart to doing what it is God wants you to do when you don't want to do it. You would much rather not do it. And yet God brings such things into our lives. So I'm going to just largely ignore the question if you already have your heart aligned toward what it is that God wants you to do, because that's kind of a no-brainer. And so let's, though, talk about this other, the more difficult path. I want to share three examples from Scripture of people that were put into situations where they knew what they had to do, and they did not want to do it. The first one is Abraham, Genesis 22. I'll read two verses. Genesis 22, starting at verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, this, the, 
the text does not say that Abraham did not want to do this, but I believe that all of us can be in agreement that this is not something that Abraham would have wanted to do. This probably caught him flat-footed. Yet, look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. There appeared to be no hesitation in Abraham doing what it is that God had told him he wanted him to do. He was willing to do it. And so now I want to talk to you about the word that's in the title of this message, wanting what to do. An alternative to that word wanting that is perhaps more appropriate, especially in Abraham's case, is willing. Willing what to do. Abraham didn't necessarily want to do that on his own part, but he was willing to do that. Why? Why was Abraham willing to do that? Because it's what God wanted. So Abraham sublimated his own desires, suppressed them, such that he could do with his whole heart what God had commanded him to do. Put yourself in his shoes. Many commentators attempt to write this off. They say this isn't real. This isn't what God wanted Abraham to do. But it's very clear this is exactly what God told Abraham to do, and Abraham was willing to do it. I've preached on this at least twice in the past. Abraham was going to do this. We know this. Now, when we speak of wanting what to do, if you remember the gestures last week, it's knowing what to do, head, wanting what to do, heart, planning what to do, head, choosing what to do, day by day, heart again, but when we speak of heart, when I speak of heart, when the Bible speaks of heart, it is different than what we now think of in our culture as associated with the heart. We think in our culture that heart has to do with affection, love. We pretty much restrict it to that, but not always. For instance, if you see a race that's this long-distance race, and this poor runner is about to finish, and yet he can no longer control his body. He's struggling to finish. He's given it 100%, about 100 feet before the finish line, and yet he guts it out. He is said by the announcer to have what? Heart. Now, that's not affection, right? No, no. This is different. This is kind of uncommon nowadays, but yet it's still in our lingo. He was resolved to finish. And so he mustered up the strength to do what it is that he had set as his goal to do perhaps years earlier. Perhaps in his youth he'd declared himself to be this runner and he is going to complete this race. And so that's what he did. And that was a matter of heart. He finished that race in pain. He was not enjoying it, but yet he had heart. Now, the second example. Now, in Abraham's case, he did what it was that God wanted him to do. In our next example, this person did not do what God wanted him to do. And let me turn to Jonah. 
Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, Jonah knew what he was supposed to do. He's past point one of our sermon series, knowing what to do. It's a clear command. Jonah knows what he's supposed to do. But, verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Tarshish is repeated because Tarshish is going in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He was commanded to go to Nineveh, and yet he didn't. He went down to Joppa to a seaport and went away to Tarshish. Jonah's heart wasn't in it. And so his feet took him away, or so he thought. You know the rest of the story. You know that Jonah didn't get away with this. God sought him out. God sent th had the sailors throw him off the ship, had the whale swallow him, and then kept him there for three days in the belly of the whale until he wanted life. He wanted to see light again. Children, it's not like the little stories. Jonah didn't have a candle lit in that whale. He's in the midst of this thing, this darkness, being swallowed by this beast, and he's afraid. And he pled to the Lord, and God then had him thrown up on the land. Then he went to Nineveh, but... Was his heart in it now? Absolutely not. He's doing it only by the compulsion of God. His heart is not in it, never was in it. And Jonah ends with Jonah's heart, not having been in what it was that he was doing. Third example. This is from Luke 22, and I'll start reading at verse 41. Luke 22. Actually, I'll start reading at verse 39. Coming out, he went, this is Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Even Jesus did not want to do something that he was now facing. And so he is here in the garden telling his father, I really don't want to go through with this. But yet he closes that prayer with, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he prays like this a couple more times. Luke says that he sweat drops of blood, as it were. So Jesus was seriously praying for release from this, or strength to go through with it. What happened then? Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. So now we see three examples from Scripture of men who had to align their hearts to do what it is that God wanted them to do. So you have Abraham, Jonah, 
and Jesus. Jonah did not want to obey. God gave him no choice. Abraham and Jesus didn't want to obey, yet they wanted to submit to their father. And so they acted in obedience, never questioning that they were going to do what it is that God had commanded them to do. Now, what this has to do with is submission. And submission in our society is a bad word. We're allowed on TV now to say the other bad words that used to be bad words, but this is not a word that you'll see on TV modeled for us anymore. And so if you want to learn the concept of submission, you really have to learn it from something other than our society because they don't practice it. In the church, submission specifically tends to be viewed in terms of a wife submitting to her husband. It is common. And people use it either positively or negatively, and that's in the church. And so we value all of God's word. We proclaim the right design of the family, and we try to live by that. And yet there are vast aspects of the church that now regard submission as a bad word, and we ought not bring it up. But a good wife, and now I'm speaking of a submissive wife in a Christian culture, a good wife is probably the best model we have on earth of what it is to submit to God. Because that good wife is a model for everyone. She's a model for her husband. She's a model for other husbands. She's a model to all the women in the church. She's a model to all the women outside of the church. Now, many people outside of the church would look on her with disdain, disgust. Yet, God will honor her. And it's interesting to me that in the hereafter, we know that there is no marriage, no giving of hand in marriage. That people will be like the angels of heaven. Now, how many women who are good, godly women, submissive women in this world will rise to positions of great power and authority in the hereafter because of the fact that they submitted to God as is their calling? And how many men who love the fact that their wives are submissive, but they themselves aren't really that submissive in their relationships to the authorities of earth, how many of them will be rebuked for the way they lived? So we see a great example of this in Nabal and Abigail. Nabal being this horrible man, very abusive, and yet Abigail being a, submiss a submissive wife to the extent that she's even protecting him and everything he owns by bringing supplies to David, such as to prevent them all from being killed. And yet God then rewards Abigail by striking her husband dead and allowing her to then marry David. Submissiveness is something that we men really ought to be modeling even better than our wives, and yet I'm not sure that we do. Another relationship from Scripture that I think is excellent in terms of this uh, pointing out good, bad decisions, pointing out wanting to do the will of your master or your leader is between King David and his commander-in-chief, Joab. Joab executed Absalom against the king's wishes, and in this he acted rebelliously Perhaps he acted wisely because David wasn't acting so wisely in regards to his son Absalom. Yet, he went against the king's instructions and he was 
his authority. Joab rebuked King David just afterwards when David was openly mourning for his son, and King David accepted that rebuke because he knew it was the right thing. So then he then did what it is that Joab told him he needed to do, and he stood and welcomed the warriors back, congratulated them for a job well done. He suppressed his anguish at the death of his son for a bit. Joab murdered two men, other commanders-in-chief. He murdered Abner, who was Ishbosheth's commander-in-chief. He murdered him because he had killed Joab's younger brother, Asahel. He then murdered Amasa, the uh, commander-in-chief that Absalom had selected, even though David had told Amasa that he would make him his commander-in-chief in place of Joab. In part, perhaps Joab knew this and murdered him. So Joab is here obviously undermining his king's desires. Joab opposed David's decision to take a census. And during the sermon series that Phil did on the life of David, we see that Joab was doing this, dragging his feet, because he knew they ought not be doing this. He was not entirely obeying David's desires, and the census was not really complete because of Joab most likely dragging his feet. But these, this is a good biblical relationship between King David and Joab that you can just see so many facets of lack of submissiveness, uh, trying to seek justification for it, uh, all of these things. But it points out the desire, the need for submission. I want to read a portion of our text again, and it is verses 5 through 8. This is from Philippians 2. I'll reread verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This phrase about having no reputation, made himself of no reputation, in the New American Standard, that is rendered emptied himself, that Jesus emptied himself. Actually, this text is the source of many uh, heresies. And yet a proper understanding of it reflects Christ's humility, just how far he had lowered himself in order, in order to enter into this world and do what it is that his father had called him to do. During Judah's history, we know that at times, temple worship was abandoned. They just stopped sacrificing animals. They stopped making the bread and taking it into the temple. They stopped burning the incense. And during those periods of time, they would just turn the temple into a building like any other. When Hezekiah came to the throne and he restored temple worship, they had to haul trash out of the temple. It had been filled up with rubbish. They had turned it into a garbage dump in some ways. My wife and I were watching a show a couple weeks ago, one of these hoarder shows, and this house was filled to the brim in many rooms with trash. You could, you could barely get through from room to room, and there were two people living in it. And yet they agreed to allow it to be emptied, and they hauled out 200 tons of garbage. These people lived in this garbage for years and years and years. 
Paul often in his letters talked about putting off and putting on, putting off and putting on. This topic, the message of this topic is wanting what to do, aligning our hearts with God's will. Some of us have difficulty aligning our hearts with God's will because our hearts are filled with trash. You value things in your heart that ought to be thrown out. They take up valuable space, and until they're removed, nothing will be put into their place. So are we aligning our hearts to God's will? Let me read the last portion of our text, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have already obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This text, it is God who works in you to will and do for his good pleasure. It is what we're talking about. Knowing what to do, wanting what to do, planning what to do, choosing what to do, that is this verse. And it's God that plants those desires in your heart such that you can then develop them, you can reveal them. But yet, you have a role in this. You are to work out your salvation. My Bible at this portion, at top of verse 12, has this as its heading, light bearers. This is that extra stuff that isn't in the original Greek, but it's here by the Bible uh, uh, publishers. Light bearers. We are to be light bearers. So are you a light bearer? How bright is your light? Do you shine your light? Do you bring your light to bear in the darkness of this world, in the darkness of your own life? This is what we must do as Christians. We have to do this. You will not live a life fulfilling or a life in obedience and pleasuring God unless you do so. You must take this light. You must make, make that light as bright as possible. You must shine it into the dark places of your own heart to start with. I want to read Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols." 
we have to determine whether there are idols in our hearts. Because if we go to God expecting answers to anything or guidance for anything, what he will do is take us by the heart, meaning take us by that which is holding the idols, then you'll feel the squeeze. You'll feel the pain. God will start destroying your idols, and then you'll feel pain. You'll feel the loss of this. It's a good loss, but you might not know it at the time. God is removing from your life these things that you are having in place of Him. Years ago, many of us read this book by Herbert Schlossberg, Idols for Destruction. It's been a while. Uh, Robert Bork, the uh, Supreme Court nominee, uh, wrote the uh, introduction or the foreword to that book, and I reread it a couple times in preparation for this uh, message. If we have trouble aligning our hearts to God's will, it's because it's already filled with something that ought not be there. And his book groups everything that you might find in your heart, that you might have as an idol in your life, into six categories. And let me share them. The first that he listed, which is interesting, is history. And I took a quote from each of these chapters that I attempted to give you just a gist. History. The dividing line between B.C. and A.D. is not just a convention. Phil has taught about this often. The world was declining just as in Noah's day, leading to what God should have destroyed, and it was on a slower, slower, a lesser, lesser angle, but the same thing was happening and leading to the coming of Christ, and yet then Christ came. And since then, Christianity has been improving the world. God, in His mercy and through the work of the church, has been generating this path now. Anybody who's not a Christian will argue with you, and 90% of the Christians will argue with you that that is true. But that's the case. That's the reality. That's what history is, His story. God is redeeming us, and He is redeeming the world. The second idol is humanity. We all know this one. Eve was the first humanist. She thought she could be wise apart from God. The third is money. The elevation of money and material possessions as the goal of life, and we know we live in a culture that highly values materialism. The fourth is nature. Now, by nature, I would also say that this is referring to science. So the quote there is, biological evolution enabled science to explain change in a way that until then they could not do. And if you read the book, you see that what biological evolution did for science was allowed it to live alongside of history and make both of them tools in the humanist tool belt. Number five is power. And the quote here is, the only branch of human endeavor that can save us is politics. That's what many people believe. They might not state it that bluntly, but that's certainly what they believe. In conversation with them, if you bring up any problem, who they will blame or who they will seek, look to for answers are politicians. The last is religion. The church has chosen to befriend the powers that dominate the world instead of judging them. That is, in many ways, what the Christian church has done. It is in bed with those in power, as opposed to judging them. 
So much of our own idolatry as individuals is rooted in one or more of these six things, and yet we won't think that's true. And yet, what I would tell you is that you're not being entirely objective. You're not being entirely honest with yourself. You're not looking deeply enough. You have to look into your heart, examine these things, and say, where are my idols? What is it that I must destroy? Let me, again, run through them again and give you another statement. This, there was a uh, quote in this book, and it was, our capacity for self-deception and self-justification is nearly infinite. So with that warning... Let's again ask about history. We forget or ignore that God directs all of history, every bit of it, every second of it. Concerning humanity, we forget God and elevate service towards mankind as the highest virtue. In other words, we ignore the whole first table of the law, and we think that it's good enough just to fulfill the second table of the law, just treat others with respect. The third, money. We participate in the rat, rat race, and we do at times try to keep up with the Joneses. We fall victim to this. Nature. We accept the belief in an elite that know better than us. What we forget is that they think they know better than God, too, and so we must be very, very cautious when we're accepting their wisdom and ignoring the Bible. Power. We adopt a victim attitude in this world and look to government for salvation or relief instead of God. And this, is, I believe, is very true of us. Now, there is a role for government, a valid role for government, but yet we live at a time when the uh, expanse of government knows no limit. Bigger, bigger, bigger. And it has to take that at the expense of our individual liberties, our family liberties, our economic liberties, all of this. And so be careful what you want. And lastly, religion. We want our church to fit in. We don't want to stick out as much as we do. Now, that's not true of dominion for the most part, I think, but yet it is true of the church. We want the church to really be a reflection of culture. And to the degree that a church is not a reflection of culture, when people come that are cultural Christians, they don't know what to make of you, and they leave, which is probably for the best because they probably don't know the Lord. If they do know the Lord, though, and they come and they keep questioning why it is that they're here and why you're so different, that's a good thing. They're beginning to ask the right questions. Now, I want to now bring up two, and see if you can guess these terms. See if you can get at what I'm hinting at. There are two terms in our popular culture now that have both been introduced in recent years. This first one, I think, was introduced real recently, like maybe just in the last five, six years, or a little more than that. But John, in John 4, Jesus and his disciples passed through Samaria en route to Galilee. In verse 8, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and Jesus then had a conversation with this Samaritan woman at the well. And this is one of my favorite chapters of all the Bible. It's John 4. So he had just declared himself to be the Messiah with this woman when his disciples return, and this is where we pick it up. John chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I have ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, meanwhile, back to the ranch, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. 
But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, do you know where I'm going with this? Jesus was a foodie. Have you heard the term? Because really, the definition for a foodie is someone who has a high regard for food, a well-developed sense for food, highly refined taste for food. That's Jesus, but it's spiritual food. I had a friend come over from India, and he was the first one I heard use that term. He declared himself to be a foodie. I didn't say I had no idea what that meant, but from context, I figured it out, and then I began hearing other people say it. So, Jesus was the first foodie. Now, there is another popular term in our culture, and let me go ahead and read from Luke uh, 22 again. I'd read from that a bit earlier, and I'll start at verse 36, 22, 36. Jesus said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So this is, these are real swords now. We're not talking uh, metaphorical swords. The things concerning me have an end, Jesus said. Let me go on. Now remember, we're looking for this popular cultural concept. And this is a little older. There was a movie using this term in 2007. I'm going to read from John 19, starting at verse 28. After this, Jesus, he is on the cross. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on the hyssop and put it in his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, what I've read to you are a couple of the 300-plus prophecies that Christ was to fulfill as a side effect of his coming, his birth, his ministry, his death, burial, resurrection. There were hundreds of prophecies about Christ. What was this to Jesus? In, in this modern term, this modern two-word phrase, what did Jesus have? that lots of people now want a bucket list. Jesus had a bucket list that he wanted to accomplish, and he did. He accomplished every single one of the items on his bucket list. He overturned the money changers' tables. Check. Heal the sick and raise the dead. Check, check. Be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Check. Remain silent before my accusers. Check. Be mocked and taunted. Check, check. Be executed as a sinner among sinners. Check. Bear the guilt and sins of man. Check. Jesus had a bucket list, and he accomplished every element on it. Now, this is about aligning our hearts with God, right? Last week, we learned about knowing. We have a reasonable certainty that this is what God wants us to do. Now, we have to align our hearts with that. And aligning your hearts with anything from God's Word is all uphill in this world. 
because it's going to go against your flesh. And Paul described in Romans 7 that while your will is on fire for the Lord, your flesh is still prone to want to serve Satan. So you are always going to be fighting against that. And yet God, who began this work in you, will continue it. I want to again go back to Philippians and read from verse uh, 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. From heaven, Jesus told Paul, and I, I believe I referred to this last week, Jesus told Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, you know what the goads are. These poor animals are being moved along by having sticks poked into their hide. So they're going the wrong way, poke a stick at them. They're going the wrong way, poke a stick at them. Jesus was telling Paul that he had been poking him with sticks to get him to go where he wanted to go until this time. But then what did Paul say? Lord, what do you want me to do? No more poking of sticks for Paul. Paul was going to get ahead of that need for stick poking. And it's the same thing we all ought to aspire to. We all ought to get ahead in our lives of the need for God to poke us with a stick to get us to do what we want. But he will. And he will keep doing it because he loves you if he needs to. We just want to absolve him of that need. God promises to grant us the desires of our heart, but are the desires of our heart aligned with God's will? That's the catch-22 here. If you have a bucket list, you should review it. We all should have bucket lists. But they're not about visiting the seven wonders of the world. At least they ought not. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. It's fun. I, I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've seen all the parks in California, all the parks in Utah. I've seen all these things. They're wonderful. But they're not what ought to be on your bucket list. Those should be spiritual goals. Just like Jesus' food was spiritual food, and he's a spiritual foodie, we want to have spiritual bucket lists. Does your bucket list align with the heart of God? Align your will with God's will, and you will then fulfill the desires of your heart. And then again, to uh, borrow another common thing from our commercial world, don't be like Jonah. Be like Abraham. Be like Jesus. Don't be like Jonah. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, which is just filled with direction for us, if only we would heed it. We thank you for your love for us, Lord. And you are so patient. You are so kind. You extend your mercy to us always. And we pray, Father, please continue to do so. And yet we also pray, be with us, uh, have us to align our hearts with yours, and that if they're not, that we would see that as a primary duty of each day, that we would get right with you, that we would seek to walk with you. We thank you now for this. We thank you now for the future. And we pray, Lord, uh, awaken us, awaken our heart's desire to serve you and to be pleasing to you. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.